It is probably the most insidious sin that we struggle with. It ruins people's personal lives. It ruins marriages and families, friendships. It ruins churches. It ruins companies. It even ruins nations. It is a sin that was exposed by Jesus when a man shouted to him in the crowd and said, I want you to settle a dispute between me and my brother over our late father's estate. And Jesus made it clear his mission in life was not to come and, and settle legal issues. But he goes on in a very important verse and he reveals what the problem is. The problem that all of us, including me, struggle with. To know what that is, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 12 as we continue in our series, The Jesus Lifestyle. Welcome those of you who are online and encourage you to open your Bibles up as well. I want to remind you that, you know, we want, we want to really work hard at worshiping God passionately. Sense that going on here. Attend regularly. You know, the average Christian in America, evangelical, barely makes it to church twice a month. It's become kind of an option, not an act of obedience. Give generously, serve humbly so that we make a difference for Christ. Okay, so what is that verse? It's verse 15, and here's what it says. Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Let's read it aloud together, ready? Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. So what's the insidious sin I'm talking about? It's greed. It's greed. You know, greed is one of those sins that is so evil that Jesus said more about it than he did sexual immorality. For every one time he talks about sexual immorality, he'll speak ten more times about greed and about selfishness. So it's a big deal. It's a big problem. Jesus even goes on in that verse, if you notice, and he says, beware, be on guard. That means that greed is subtle. That it's not so easily recognized, especially when we're thinking about ourselves. It's always easier to see something wrong in someone else. I've heard it said that whatever you see wrong in somebody else is probably what's wrong with you. It's like a mirror. But you know, if you murder somebody, you know you did it. Others find out that you did it. If you commit adultery or fornication, sex outside of marriage, you know you did it. That person knows they did it, and others will find out. But when it comes to greed, we have a hard time seeing it in our lives because it comes in all kinds of different forms, Jesus says. So I want to give you an example of why it's hard for us to see it in our lives in a materialistic culture like we live in here in America. I came across a sociological term it's called referent or referent groups. And a referent group is simply the group you identify with. And we may identify with many groups, but it's the group you most identify yourself with. It's that group that you hang with. It's a group that, that you find your meaning, your, your sense of worth and value that you, you try to keep up with. And I'm going to use a secular example. I'm going to use a business example. Let's talk about the big four, big four financial institutions, consulting and uh, business practices, accounting, etc. If you go to the big four, you find out that there are several layers of, of folks who work there, or kind of a pecking order, or a ladder, so to speak. At the bottom of the ladder, at the bottom rung, is, are the associates. 
All right, the next level up, you have senior associates. The next level up, you have managers. Don't worry, this is not a, a Ponzi scheme, all right? The next level up is, are our senior managers. Then you have partners. What would you guess is the next level up? Senior partners, all right? Senior partners, not too complicated, okay? All of these make up a referent group, or all of these, let's say they were fish, all of them swim in the same aquarium or swim in the same sea. There's a lot that they have in common. They rub shoulders with each other, but they're very different from each other, especially when it comes to pay. An associate will make something like 50000 a year, and a senior partner can make anywhere from 450000 a year up in the big four. Now, which end would you prefer to be in? This one or that one? How many of you take, I'll take the top end? Of course we would, right? Because we could tithe it and do so much good with it, right? <laughs> All right. That just came to my mind. <clears throat> Wish I remember that the other services. All right? But seriously, which end? We would want the top end. Now, imagine if we're all in the same sea, we're all in the same pool, swimming together. Okay? Everybody down here senses the disparity. And everybody down here is trying to be like everybody up here. If you're here, you want to be there or there. If you're here, you want to be there or there or there, okay? But you can't get there right away. So what happens is you try to act like you're there and you overspend yourself because you're trying to drive the same car they drive, go to the vacation, the same places they vacation, eat at the same restaurants they eat at, you know, wear the same fashions they wear. And what happens is you end up, you end up going into debt for it. You end up with a life filled with all kinds of anxiety and stress, but you never see yourself as greedy. Do you know why? Because in your mind, the people who are greedy are the ones up here, all right? Or you may say the ones who are here. Always the people above you who are the greedy ones. Why don't you see yourself as greedy? Because you'll say to yourself, I don't have what they have, therefore I'm not greedy. See how that works? I don't have what they have, therefore I'm not greedy. Now listen carefully. Greed is not necessarily how much you have. Greed is not necessarily how much you have. Now, you may have gotten there by greed, and you may be greedy about what you have, but greed is wanting with an obsession and a passion and a drivenness what you don't currently have. Greed is the pursuit for more. Greed says that things and money and status means more to me than God. Than love. Than life. And greed is the language of our culture. So how do you know if greed is at work in your life, in your family, with your kids? Well, Jesus gives us some signs of greed. So come back to the text, and he tells a story. He tells a story about a rich landowner. Here's what he says. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, 
You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Two signs agreed in that story. One, gloating over what you have. Rejoicing, being happy in everything that you've accumulated. Kind of, you know, kind of sniffing the cash, so to speak, right? Counting and recounting what you have. Taking a look at your portfolio and just basking in it as though you were basking in the sunlight. The second sign of greed in that passage of Scripture is security. It goes right in hand. This guy feels so secure because he has so much. He's like, I've got it made. I don't have to worry anymore. I just got to build bigger barns for all the extra I have. Rather than feeling secure in God, he feels secure in what he has. Rather than being happy and rejoicing at God, he's happy and rejoicing in what he's accumulated. That is a sign of greed. Let's move on in the passage. Come down to verse 22. Opposite. It seems like the opposite. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Worry is a sign of greed. Got really quiet, didn't it? I worry. Anybody else? I'll even admit that sometimes I'm greedy. Anybody else? Yeah. We wrestle with it, don't we? And Jesus says, why do you worry? Why don't you trust God? Why are you worried about accumulating more? Why are you worried about what you have that it might be taken away? God takes care of the raven. God takes care of nature. He's going to take care of you. Stop worrying about it. Well, it's easy to read that, but how does that practically work itself out? We'll get back to answering that in a few moments. But maybe your worry is caused by greed. Hmm. Verse 27. Consider how the wildflowers, other versions say the lilies of the field, consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. I want to show you the wildflower he's talking about. Here's a picture from Israel. They're really poppies. Aren't they beautiful? This is what we'll look like in a couple months. Maybe. But it's beautiful, isn't it? God made those beautiful. Come back to the text. What's he saying to us? Come back down, verse 28. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Stop right there. What kind of worry is he talking about here? What do the lilies of the field have to do with me and worry and me and greed? Well, the lilies of the field are beautiful. They're attractive. And God has given them their beauty and their attractiveness, right? You know, greed is not just about hoarding how much I have. Greed can also be about spending. Spending to get something else. In this case, we live in a culture that says that you can perhaps buy approval acceptance, and attractiveness. That one of the ways you move up the ladder of your referent group, whether it's your 
buddies, your peers at school or at work or in the neighborhood, one of the ways you do that is you buy their approval. You buy their attraction. You buy their acceptance. And so we spend an awful lot of money trying to get people to like us, to drive the right car, to wear the right clothes, to have the right fashions, to go to the right places, to eat the right food. Let me ask you a question. Will they still love you and like you when you run out of it all? When you no longer had that status, when you no longer had that car, when you no longer had that fashion, when you no longer had that capability, will they still love you? Will they still like you? It's amazing how much money and how much time we spend on just wanting to be accepted. And those of you who are parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? And those of you who are students, you know the pressure you face. You know, I mean, it's what you wear in some cases. It's your status in some cases. It's where you live in some cases. And we got to be careful about that. It's another form of greed. Then you come to verse 30, and look what he says. For the pagan world, that's anybody who's not a believer, a follower of Jesus, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. I'll come back to that verse 31 in a few moments. But if you've ever run a race and run it hard, when you're done running your race, how do you feel? You're exhausted, right? Is it possible that that some of us are exhausted because greed is just driving us so hard. To have more than we need, to do more than we need to do, to buy and accept you know, people's approval, to worry and fret. That's not how God wants us to live our lives that way. So the question becomes, how do I... How do I counter greed in my life? How do I stop greed from controlling me? How do I deal with this in my family, with my children, with my my lifestyle? Jesus gives us some answers. So come back again to the text. And I want to pick it up actually at verse 31. Jesus says, but seek his kingdom, but being a contrast. In other words, uh, instead of the greed way, a new way. But seek his kingdom and these things, your needs, will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail. In other words, make your investment the work of God, the kingdom of God, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Listen carefully. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Packed with a lot of truth. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the way you counter greed is to live with a deep awareness of God's radical grace in saving your life. Nowhere in the text does Jesus say, if you sell your possessions, you'll have eternal life. Doesn't say that. In essence, what he's saying is if you really understand my kingdom, if you really know what it means to follow me, you'll be willing and ready to sell everything you have. See, we go through life one of two ways. We either go through life like this, hanging on to everything we have, or we go through life like that. How did Jesus live his life? Like this? Was he a taker? Or did he live his life like this? Was he a giver? Did he sacrifice? In fact, what it says here in, a, in the last verse I read, for your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where was Jesus' treasure? 
If you follow Jesus' heart, it'll lead you to his treasure. Where was his treasure? Right here on earth. You and me. Look what Peter says about it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, that's you, me. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. In the Greek, that's better translated, God's special treasure. Do you know that? You're his special treasure. What did it cost him to buy you? Look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he liquidated everything, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become what? Might become rich. So Jesus didn't go through life like this. He went through life like this. In order to give his life away to have you and me. As his followers, he expects us to go through life like this. Let's do something tactile for just a moment. Take your hands and make a closed fist like this, all right? This represents greed. Now open them up. That represents unselfishness. Close them again. Open them again. Now here's my question. How are you living your life today? And I think it's something you got to ask yourself every day, not, you know, how are you living your life this year? <laughs> every day, I got to open those hands up because I wake up and they tend to be closed. How about you? I got to work, I got to deal with greed every day. It comes in so many forms. We just talked about it. So every day I got to go through life and say, Lord, help me live this way. In fact, Jesus lives so much like this, they put nails in his hands, the ultimate sacrifice. Somebody who knows the grace of God cannot be selfish. If you truly know the grace of God, you can't be selfish. Now, we obviously every day struggle to live in the radiance of his grace. We tend to get kind of self-centered. And the Christian life is just disciplining ourselves to remind ourselves what Jesus did for me so that I live like this, not like this. But there's something else that could help us. Because if you notice what we're reading along here, Jesus seems to be indicating don't worry because your needs are going to be provided for. Don't worry because your needs are going to be provided for. How is that going to happen? I want you to go back to the Gospel of Mark with me in chapter 10 for a moment on a, another incident of greed. Jesus encounters a very real person known as the rich young ruler. <clears throat> He's a very wealthy young man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And he and Jesus have a discussion. You can read it there in Mark 10. And at the end of the discussion, Jesus says to him, now go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. I want to ask you a question. If on the way to the car, if on the way to school tomorrow, Jesus were to intercept you and say to you, I want you to give everything away and come follow me, would your hands be wide open immediately? Or would you be like struggling to do it? The disciples struggled to do it. I struggle sometimes to do it. Because we worry our needs won't be met. And the rich young ruler can't open his hands up. It says that he went away because he couldn't part with his possessions, his status in life. And Jesus loved him, it says. But then the disciples are like, Lord, we're trying to live like this. Now, they expect Jesus to usher in his kingdom. They think they're going to live like this and it's just going to be, a, you know, they're, they're going to be CEOs with him. Vice presidents with Jesus. They're going to be in charge. But they're quickly going to find out that Jesus is going to die. Oh my goodness. 
what's going to happen to me? He's going to leave. They're going to have they're going to face persecution. How are they going to live their lives? So they look at Jesus. In essence, they say, we give it everything up. What happens to us? And I want you to notice what he says, because it's very important if we're going to understand how we're to live and we're going to understand the real meaning of a church, the real purpose of a church. Look at verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, and they all did that, or fields, in their case it was fishing, for me and the gospel will, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Let's stop there. What has Jesus just said to them? You leave your mother, father, brother, sisters. You say goodbye you know, to the fishing business. You give up all those things. In this life, you're going to receive a hundredfold. Now, some televangelists like to use verses like this to say that God wants you to be rich, and what you got to be able to do is give it all away, and by the way, send the check to me, and God will bless you a hundredfold. They take this passage way out of context. That's not what Jesus means. How is it, though, if you give up everything that in this life you receive more? How is it if you leave your family behind, you gain a family? I'll tell you how it is. When I come here on Sunday mornings to tell you a little secret, I uh, oftentimes when the service starts, I just kind of take a few moments while I'm in this, this room and I pray. I pray before in the morning, but it's just kind of set my tone for the morning. And I'll oftentimes pray this way, because you all intimidate me. I'll pray, Lord, please remind me, these are my fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters. This is my family. I shouldn't be intimidated by my family. I love my family. My family is supposed to love me. And that's supposed to bring a kind of sense of security. So, you see, my mom and dad live in Florida. I haven't lived at home since I've been 17 years of age. That's a long time ago. But, you know, all along the journey, as Marcia and I have, you know, I've lived in different places, God has always given me mothers and fathers. I have one brother, but really I have many more brothers. I have no sister, but I really have many sisters. Do you see what I'm trying to say? I had three kids, but I got a lot more than that. That's what Jesus is saying. He gives you this family. He gives you this family that I'll call a radical community called the church. And we fill the void for each other when we sacrifice, when, when we give things up. Let's go back to the passage of Scripture. He says, well, in verse 30, well, I got to give you the whole context. It doesn't make sense. It says, no one who has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or feels for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, yes, it comes, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Say, so, okay, I get the family part, but how about the financial part? Well, go over to Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to read it to you. We don't have time. I'm going to trust you to do it. It's your homework assignment, all right? Acts chapter 2, and I just want you to mark verse 42. It's easy to do, or write it down real quick. Acts 2, 42, and then Acts chapter 4, verse 32. 2, 42, and 4, 32, all right? I want you to read those passages of Scripture because it describes the early church. And here's what it tells us about the early church. It says that they had all things in common. And nobody had any needs. Why? Because when they came together, they shared with each other. And in Acts chapter 4, it says, even some of the wealthy on occasion would sell their land 
and bring the proceeds to the apostles so it could be distributed to meet the needs of the people. We are to create, in a sense, our own economy and look after each other so that when those of us who are called to go, let's say, into full-time ministry, legitimately called by God, whether it's here, near, or far, have our needs met by the body of Christ, by Christ himself through us. And when one of us is in a crisis, financially, whatever, those needs are met by the body of Christ. And y'all are so generous at Wooddale. When we take our compassion offering at the end of uh, communion once a month, you give graciously so we can bless and help each other. Last year when we took our, our Christmas offering, you gave $200,000 for the refugees you've never met living in Jordan to provide food and clothes and medicine. When I said our ministry fund is at a gap, we're at about 85%, you helped us close that gap to about 93%. See, when I understand that what I have belongs to God and I release it to God, then I really don't have a lot to worry about. God works in and through us to accomplish his mission and vision to see lives change here, near, and far. But the thing I got to wrestle with is, is who does it all belong to in the first place? Which takes us back to the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. So look back there one more time. I didn't, I didn't give you these two verses when I read about the, the rich landowner. Look what happens after he kind of brags and gloats and feels secure in everything he has. Verse 20 says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever, whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Hear what Jesus is saying? I like uh, a commentary by Earl Ellis in his commentary that I have. He's commenting on these passages of Scripture. And he says, you know, the critical error that that man made in Jesus' story is he thought he was an owner when he was just a tenant. And when his life ended, everything he had went back into the box, so to speak. Even his soul didn't belong to him because he had to give an account to God. What do you see yourself as? Owner or tenant? Owner or steward? Manager over what's been given to you? I want to tell you a, a cute story. Written by John Ortberg. He's a pastor and a prolific author. Maybe you've read some of his books. If you haven't, they're worth picking up and reading. John tells a story on himself it's about his grandmother, and I want you to listen to what he has to say. He says, my grandmother was a lovely woman, but she was the most ruthless Monopoly player I've ever known in my life. <laughs> Imagine what would have happened if Donald Trump had married Leona Helmsley and they would have had a child. Then you have some picture of what my grandmother was like when she played Monopoly. <laughs> she understood that the name of the game was to acquire when we would play, when I was a little kid and I got my money from the bank, I would always want to save it, hang on to it, because it was just so much fun to have money. She spent on everything she landed on, and then when she bought it, she would mortgage it as much as she could and buy everything else that she landed on. 
she would accumulate everything she could. And eventually she became the master of the board. And every time I landed, I would have to pay her money. And eventually, every time she would take my last dollar, and I would quit in utter defeat. And then she would always say the same thing to me. She'd look at me and she'd say, one day, you'll learn to play the game. I hated it when she said that. But one summer, I played Monopoly with a neighbor kid, a friend of mine, almost every day, all day long. We'd play Monopoly for hours. And that summer, I learned to play the game. I came to understand the only way to win is to make a total commitment to acquisition. I came to understand that money and possessions, that's the way you keep score. And by the end of the summer, I was more ruthless than my grandmother. I was ready to bend the rules if I had to, to win that game. And I sat down to play with my grandmother that fall. Slowly, Cunningly, I exposed my grandmother's vulnerability. Relentlessly, inexorably, I drove her off the board. The game does strange things to you. She was an old lady by now. She was a widow. She had raised my mom. She loved my mom. She loved me. I took everything she had. <laughs> I destroyed her financially and psychologically. I watched her give her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. It was the greatest moment of my life. And then she had one more thing to teach me. Then she said, now it all goes back in the box. All those houses and hotels, all the railroads and utility companies, all that property and all that wonderful money, now it all goes back in the box. I didn't want it to go back in the box. I wanted to leave the board out, bronze it maybe, as a memorial to my ability to play the game. No, she said. None of it was really yours. He got all heated up about it for a while, but it was around a long time before you sat down at the board, and it will be here after you're gone. Players come, players go, but it all goes back in the box. People come and people go, but everything we have will go back in the box and become somebody else's. And Jesus says, what matters is how you think about what's on the board. That it's not yours, but it's been given to you by your Father to manage for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray and ask that you would speak to our hearts today and my heart as well. Lord, that you'd point out any greed or selfishness in our lives right now. God, I pray that we'd be willing to open up our fists and let go and trust you. That God, if you're asking us to be sacrificial, we'd sacrifice. If you're telling us to give it all away, then we'd give it all away. If you're calling us to do something, Lord, that's gonna cause us to leave mother and father and brother and sister and homes and whatever else, we'd be willing to obey that call. And we'd trust you to take care of and to provide our needs. Lord, I pray that as a church, we, O oh God, would exemplify the richness of Christ with a heart for a lost world, here, near, and far, and a heart of compassion for one another. 
Lord, that our joy would not come in trying to keep up with any group, but our joy would come from identifying with Jesus. Lord, we live in a hard place. I think, Father, this is often more challenging to live in a country like ours than to live in a third world country where there's just so much poverty. It is so easy to substitute what we have for you. So we, Lord, want to live in a way that, I want to live in a way that honors you with hands open. In Jesus' name.